When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Are you being influenced? If you've watched a blockbuster film in the last decade, there's a chance it's been influenced by the Chinese Communist Party. Here's the reality. The CCP may be running the largest influence campaign in history. In Hollywood Takeover, brought to you by the Epic Times, investigative reporter Tiffany Meyer reveals how the CCP exerts control over some major studios. Don't miss the most important documentary about Hollywood yet. And for a limited time, you can watch the first 10 minutes for free at HollywoodTakeover.com slash Ben. HollywoodTakeover.com slash Ben. Let me tell you about our friends over at Patriot Mobile. For 10 years, Patriot Mobile has been America's only Christian conservative wireless provider. And when I say only, trust me, they really are the only one. The team at Patriot Mobile put this company together so that you could stop giving your money to woke, big mobile companies that give massive donations to Democrats and massive donations to organizations like Planned Parenthood. Patriot Mobile also offers dependable nationwide coverage, giving you the ability to access all three major networks. What does that mean? It means you get the same coverage that you're accustomed to without funding the left's agenda. And when you switch to Patriot Mobile, you're sending a clear message that you support free speech, religious freedom, the sanctity of life, the Second Amendment, as well as our military, our veterans, and our first responder heroes in this country. They have a 100% U.S.-based customer service team that also makes switching easy. And you get to keep your same cell phone number if you want to. You get to keep your same phone you have right now or upgrade to a new one. And every month when you pay your bill... A portion of your bill goes back to support conservative causes at no extra cost to you. So stop giving your money to woke companies and switch to Patriot Mobile. Go to PatriotMobile.com slash verdict. That's PatriotMobile.com slash verdict. Use the promo code verdict. You'll get free activation as well. Or you can call them 972-PATRIOT. That's 972-PATRIOT. PatriotMobile.com slash Verdict. Welcome. It is Verdict with Senator Ted Cruz. Ben Ferguson with you. And one of the things I love about doing this podcast, Senator, is the fact that we can hit the pause button on the big news, breaking news, and legislation when we have days like uh, the news that we just uh, had happen this week. Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman, uh, talk about breaking the glass ceiling on the Supreme Court, has passed away at the age of 93. And, Senator, you knew her. You clerked at the Supreme Court. And and I think we should take a moment and talk about her legacy uh, and and what she meant to the history of this country, especially as being the first woman on the Supreme Court. Well, listen, Sandra Day O'Connor was an extraordinary person. and, And she's an historic person. She's a trailblazer any way you look at it. She was the first woman in our nation's history to serve on the Supreme Court. It's worth pausing and thinking for a second. We did not have a woman on the Supreme Court until 1981, until Ronald Reagan was president when he was campaigning for president against Jimmy Carter. Yeah. 
He promised if there's a vacancy, he would appoint a woman, and he did. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor's life, she grew up on a ranch in Arizona. She was a tough Western woman. Uh, she had a life in politics. She was in the Arizona State Legislature. She was the Senate Majority Leader in the Arizona Legislature. Before that, she was obviously a lawyer. She went to Stanford Law School. She was classmates with a fellow by the name of William Hubbs Rehnquist. Rehnquist, who would later become the 16th Chief Justice of the United States, and as you know, Rehnquist was my boss, was an extraordinary man. That class at Stanford, Rehnquist was number one in his class. Sandra Day O'Connor was number three in his class, in their class. Wow. I've always wondered whatever happened to the poor schlub who was number two. <laughs> You've really yeah. got to feel like a loser to be yeah. between the two of them. Now, interestingly enough, when they were in law school, William Rehnquist and Sandra Day O'Connor dated. No way. Not only did they date, but Rehnquist asked her to marry him, and she said no. This isn't a wives' tale. This is legit. No, no. This is – he was my boss. I knew him. He was a mentor. I knew him very wow. well. Um, subsequently, they both got married. Yeah. And – Wait. She's, did you ever hear the story of the saying a no and how that went down? Just that it happened. I, <laughs> I, I will say, look, there are some things as a law clerk you can ask your boss – uh, Chief, how did the girl you asked you to, to marry you say no? That's not one of the questions a, good, a law clerk can ask your boss. That's a very good decision. Fair point. So, but he and his wife and she and her husband became lifelong friends. That's so cool. And and so she was Sandra Day. Yeah. And she was dating a fellow named John O'Connor, who obviously became her husband. She describes, she wrote an autobiography about growing up on the ranch, and she describes how she brought her then-boyfriend, back to the ranch to meet her parents. And she said her dad took John out on the ranch. She said, it so happened that that was the day my dad was castrating calves. <laughs> and That's she, a smart dad right there, She by writes the way. in the book, I wonder if he was trying to send a message. <laughs> and I got to say, as the father of daughters, I find something exquisitely beautiful about having a conversation about some... You, look, you're the father of sons, yeah, so, oh, so, yeah. so you may not appreciate the beauty of ripping the <laughs> testicles off of a live creature while you're talking about some boy that wants to date your daughter. Yeah. But that's what Sandra Day O'Connor's dad did. So she had a life where she was in politics, and then she ended up in 1981 when Reagan is president being appointed to the Supreme Court, being the first female Supreme Court justice. Now, I got to say, as the dad of two daughters, that was a really significant threshold. Sure. You know, I asked my girls the day Justice O'Connor died. I said, do you know who Sandra Day O'Connor is? And my 15-year-old daughter said, yeah, dad, I do. I'm not going to tell you. My 13-year-old said, I have no idea and I don't care, uh, which you can look forward to this when you have teenagers. Yes. Um, so I tried to explain briefly to them, and then they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever, Dad. So Justice O'Connor on the court, she was a trailblazer. She and Tony Kennedy, who, who was Reagan's uh, third appointee, were the swing votes for 20 years. So basically the way the court played out for a long time is there were three reliable conservative justices, William Rehnquist, Antonin Scalia, and Clarence Thomas— 
there were four reliable left-wing justices. And then in the middle, exquisitely in the middle, were Sandra Day O'Connor and Tony Kennedy. And the basic dynamic was, look, the left wing of the court had four votes. They needed to get one of them. Yeah. And if they got one of them, they won 5-4. And so to have a conservative victory on the court, you had to hold on to O'Connor and you had to hold on to Kennedy. And that was a complicated dynamic. They were each susceptible to different issues. Yeah. So Sandra Day O'Connor was someone who believed powerfully in balancing. There's a Law Review article that Antonin Scalia wrote called The Rule of Law is a Law of Rules. And in law, there's a basic divide between do you have judges laying out bright line rules or do you have judges engaging in standards? Now, what are the advantages of a bright line rule? A bright line rule is clear, it's predictable, and you can anticipate it. You know what it is. You know what the line is. Scalia was a big advocate of bright line rules. What are the disadvantages of bright line rules? Well, there can be instances in which it's unfair. If you have an absolute cutoff, there can be a particular instance in which it's unjust for someone to get hammered on the other side of a bright line. Sandra Day O'Connor loved balancing tests. She loved amorphous standards. Now, what is the advantage of an amorphous standard? Well, you can respond to fairness. You can make sure that if someone's particularly deserving, you take care of them. If someone's particularly undeserving, they get their just results. What are the disadvantages of standards? No one knows what the hell the rule is beforehand. So if someone's yeah. trying to order their conduct, if someone's trying to say, if you're a lawyer in private practice and you're advising a client, can you engage in the following conduct? If the judges are employing standards, like, I don't know. Depends if the judge thinks the conduct is good or bad. It's very hard to anticipate what the rules are going to be. If it's simply the judge's own sense of fairness and equity and balancing. So on that divide, O'Connor was really a, very, a counterpoint to Scalia. She believed in standards. Scalia believed in rules. The divide was dramatic, but I can tell you, so I argued in front of Justice O'Connor numerous times. How was that, by the way, and how do you prepare for that? Because I know when you're, you're going to up there, you, you're going to probably, I'm assuming, try to make points to certain justices that you think would connect with them so that they like you. You know some of their tendencies. But, but, but when you go up against, you, you go in front of, I say, the Supreme Court, and you're looking at Sandra Day O'Connor, who's literally broke the glass ceiling, was that intimidating as a, as a lawyer the first time you're there? I mean, did you, and knowing how she is? So my first oral argument was on October 7th, 2003. I was 32 years old. It was a case called Frew versus Hawkins. I had just been appointed Solicitor General of Texas the beginning of that year. And look, I got to say, number one, how do you prepare for it? I had spent literally thousands of hours getting ready for that oral argument. I'd spent an enormous amount of time on the brief. It was a very complicated brief. So I'd written the briefs in that case. I did four moot courts. And you ask, was it intimidating? I got to admit, at 32, look, I was a pretty cocky kid. I know you find that hard to believe. It's totally out of character with me now. Yes. But at 32, I felt pretty good about my abilities to handle this. And so I had a rule every time I did an oral argument. I would supercharge my sleep. It's interesting. There, there is uh, physiological testing that sleep matters enormously for mental acuity. And actually, sleep the night before matters. 
but it matters even more two nights before. So when I was in college, I used to teach the SAT at Princeton Review, which was really fun. And we would advise kids, if you're taking the SAT or the LSAT or the MCAT or whatever test, get a ton of sleep the night before, get a ton of sleep two nights before. So every oral argument I would the night before and two nights before try to get nine to ten hours sleep. Uh, By the way, in politics, before any debate, I try to do that for two nights in a row, get nine to ten hours sleep, because your brain is a half second faster. And and in combat, a half half second matters. Well, the night before my oral argument, I went to bed at like 830 at night. I laid down in bed and I stared at the ceiling and did not sleep a minute. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm sitting there like, all right, big guy, you feel really confident, but you're scared out of your mind. And so my first Supreme Court argument ended up being with an all-nighter involuntarily because I could not fall asleep. Now, my first argument was a case, Frew versus Hawkins. It was at the outer edge of federalism. Having done four moot courts, I knew we didn't have a prayer. We were not going to win. And in fact, my home run that I wanted is I wanted to lose 8-1. And I wanted to lose 8-1. I wanted a Clarence Thomas dissent. My whole argument was, come on, Justice Thomas, give me this dissent. Come on, you can do it. And, and so the argument, all right, I'll get a little bit into the weeds. The argument concerned a consent decree that a Democrat attorney general of Texas, Dan Morales, had entered into that dramatically increased the amount of money that Texas spent on Medicaid. Dan Morales was a Democrat. He entered into that consent decree because the legislature would never agree to that. Dan Morales wanted it, and so it was a complicit consent decree between a liberal Democrat and a a plaintiff's lawyer that both agreed, let's force the taxpayer to spend a bunch of money on things that, that we want them to spend that the elected legislature would never agree to. John Cornyn, who was attorney general of Texas, had challenged that consent decree and gotten a court to overturn it. Then Greg Abbott became the next attorney general. He appointed me as solicitor general. The Fifth Circuit had upheld overturning that consent decree, and the Supreme Court granted cert. It took the appeal. Now, the problem was once they took the appeal, there was no circuit split. Generally, the Supreme Court takes cases when the courts of appeals disagree. There was no split. Wow. The only reason to take the case was to reverse. And so I got up at the oral argument. The first case, so the Supreme Court term always begins on the first Monday of October. My argument was the first case and the first, uh, first day of the term. And I got up, and I'm presenting the argument. And by the way— Is that good or bad news, by the way? Because I don't know. How, I mean, is that it, a— It doesn't particularly matter. It was kind of a cool coincidence, but it doesn't matter. But what's interesting, so, look, if you watch TV, you think that a Supreme Court argument is giving some— Massive— peroration. yeah. Some speech where you're Clarence Darrow, you're going to speak and soar. That is not a Supreme Court argument. You begin with, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Every argument begins with, with, with that opening. And you begin talking, and the justices will interrupt you with questions, and they'll do it fast, and they'll fire at you. And, and, and I've told when I used to teach at, at UT Law School, I would tell my, my students, I said, look, an oral argument in front of the Supreme Court, you're, you're standing in front of the nine of the smartest lawyers on the planet, and, and you're a little bit like a chunk of tuna being fed to a school of sharks. They come at you every direction, and every question you're trying to think of, okay, how do I answer this? And you've got to understand, if you're answering a question, a smart justice, so the questions are generally not inquisitorial in the sense of, hey, what are the facts on this? Hey, what's the law on this? What 
most arguments you go in and two or three or four justices are on one side of the issue and two or three or four justices on the other side of the issue. And you know that going in. Yes. And there are one or two that are in the middle. And what happens is so the justices don't talk to each other before an argument. They basically op- is that a legal thing or is that just tradition? No, it's tradition. It's okay. not a legal thing. They can do it. But they basically operate like nine separate law firms that happen to share the same building. So typically, the very first time the justices will have discussed the case is there with you in the room at the oral argument. And so you will get questions, number one, from the justices who disagree with you. They're trying to ask a question in a line of questions to make your position look utterly imbecilic. So the reason you need that half-second speed is you're trying to anticipate, if I answer yes to question one, where does question two, three, four, and five take me? Because they want you to answer question five, something so ridiculous that the swing justice says, well, no, 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 I couldn't possibly agree with that position. On the other hand, the justices who agree with you, they'll typically, they think you're an idiot too. (laughs) So they'll typically jump in, well, counsel, don't you mean to say the following? And they're actually trying to argue to their colleagues through you. Trying to help you. They're trying to help you. And so as an advocate, you're responding to this. Now, that's in, in a normal case. In many of the cases I argued, that's what played out. That was not true. Fru, if you go back and read the transcript, and I have, there are three pages in the middle of the transcript where I do not get out two consecutive syllables. In 30 minutes of argument, I did not have a single positive question. I didn't have a single neutral question. There's a whole, the three pages, there's a section where Scalia jumps in with da 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 da. And I go, yeah. And then Ginsburg jumps in and goes, ba ba da 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 da. And I go, da. And I have three pages where I go, yeah, ba, da. That's it. That's all I get. And most of the questions came down to the following counsel. How the hell can you say that the state didn't consent to a consent decree? Yeah. You're like, okay, Justice, yes, that's a problem. I I agree. But my argument, which I still think is right, is how can it be that one temporary office holder in the state can permanently give away the authority of the, the people of the state to elect their legislature and make policy decisions? By the way, Dan Morales... After he agreed to this consent decree, he was convicted of a felony and sent to prison. No way. So the guy who did this was in the penitentiary. Anyway. That, that's a good excuse of not being there that day in court, though, uh, right? It was. <laughs> so oral argument proceeded 30 minutes. It was brutal. I told you my, my home run was an 8-1 loss with a Clarence Thomas dissent. I'm sorry to say I failed utterly. I lost 9-0. Um, The opinion rejected everything we said across the board. Afterwards, I went and saw Chief Justice Rehnquist, my own boss, that the case was decided so you could sit down and talk with him after it was done. So it was the afternoon. I had tea with him. It's one of the things he liked to do was have tea in the afternoon with his former clerks. Did he love, by the way, the fact that you were a former clerk that was then arguing in front of him? And he had had many former clerks. Like like, like he was – he was – But it's got to be cool. I mean, you're looking out there, and it's somebody that worked on your staff. Yes, but among his former clerks are a guy named John G. Roberts, who became the next Chief Justice of the United States. So I think it's fair to say he was not unused to having former clerks argue in front of him. And Rehnquist says to me, he goes, Oh, oh, Ted, (laughs) they say for your first argument, 
you should pick a case you can't lose or can't win. I think you chose wisely. <laughs> I was like, uh, thanks, Chief. Thanks, All right. yeah. All right, so let's go back to more O'Connor stories. So they were classmates. Rehnquist was appointed by Richard Nixon. By the way, he was appointed. He was the head of the Office of Legal Counsel under Nixon. Nixon couldn't remember his name. If you look at the Nixon White House tapes, they were going through choices. They were having a really rough time with choices. And Nixon says, what about Rensburg? And Rensburg became an associate justice of the Supreme Court. He couldn't get his name right, but he became nominated nonetheless. So when Reagan was president, he had promised to nominate the first woman. In 1981, there were very few women that had judicial careers. The sort of list of potential nominees to choose from was quite limited in 1981, and especially if you were looking for conservatives. It was almost non-existent. And so Rehnquist actually suggested Sandra Day O'Connor, his old classmate, his old girlfriend, and Reagan took him up on it. Now, the year I clerked at the court was 1996 to 1997. That year was the very first uh, case challenging the Congress had passed a law governing Internet porn. And it was the first challenge to a regulation of Internet porn. And this is 1996. The justices didn't know what the Internet was. I mean, this was really early on. And so the court librarians... Uh, you know, in my head right now, I'm thinking, what was the median age of the Supreme Court back then? 1,007. Yeah. Okay. Like, like, they're really old. So the... the libra- You've got mail. Did you have to show them how to do that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the librarians of the court decide, we're going to try to do a tutorial to explain the Internet to the justices. And it so happened that they linked together the Rehnquist Chambers and the O'Connor Chambers. And so we had a small room. We had William Rehnquist, the Chief Justice of the United States. We had Sandra Day O'Connor. We had O'Connor's four law clerks. We had Rehnquist's three law clerks. We're all in this tiny, dark room. And there's a Supreme Court librarian who is typing search queries into the Internet to explain what it is. And she types in the word. Number one, she turns off all the filters, the porn filters that would normally keep it out. And then with the filters off, she types in the word cantaloupe misspelled. And cantaloupe misspelled in 1996 with no filters on, pulled up, graphic hardcore pornography. And so I'm sitting, standing in a darkened room right behind Sandra Day O'Connor looking at a computer screen (laughs) of graphic (laughs) porn. And Ben, to this day, I still remember what Justice O'Connor said as she looked at it. She goes, oh, my. <laughs> and I have to admit, all right, number one, it's awkward as all hell. I'm like, get yeah, me out of here. Yeah. Like, I don't want to be in yeah, this room yeah. with a septuagenarian watching porn right now. But I also couldn't help thinking, like, I knew the history. I knew that Rehnquist had dated O'Connor. And I couldn't help thinking, how weird is this for my boss that he's standing next to his old girlfriend. Who could have been his wife. 50 years later, and yeah. they're watching porn with their employees. At the Supreme Court. Yeah. It, it, was a, it was a surreal moment. Let me tell you about blackout coffee. Bidenomics is a complete and total disaster. But I don't let 
that or any of these other issues ruin my day. You want to know why? Because I start my day with a hot America first cup of blackout coffee. Now, if you like a premium cup of coffee to start your day and I got to get up every day and get on the radio at seven in the morning, I have to be ready to give the news. And that is why I have to have a good cup of coffee, not average, but a really good cup of coffee. Blackout Coffee is 100% America, 0% woke company. You know there's a bunch of woke coffee companies out there. The biggest ones are the wokest ones out there. Well, Blackout is 100% committed to conservative values, from sourcing the beans to the roasting process. Customer support and shipping, they embody true American values and accept no compromise on taste or quality. I'm drinking it every day. I can tell you this is true. You need to try Blackout Coffee. And if you've got someone on your Christmas list that is a coffee drinker that loves premium coffee, go to blackoutcoffee.com slash verdict. That's blackoutcoffee.com slash verdict. You'll use the promo code verdict and you're going to get 20% off your first order. Plus, you can see all their incredible gift ideas for the holidays. It's blackoutcoffee.com slash verdict. Be awake, not woke. Blackoutcoffee.com slash verdict. I'd like to take a moment and have a real heart-to-heart with you. If you're able right now, place your hand over your heart. Can you feel it? That's your heartbeat telling you that you're alive. It's the same for a preborn baby. Their heart begins to form at conception, and at just three weeks, it's already beating. At five weeks, a baby's heartbeat can be heard on ultrasound. And that's why we've partnered with Preborn, because we need to help these precious babies. Every day, Preborn's networks of clinics rescue 200 babies from abortion when a mother with an unplanned pregnancy meets her baby on ultrasound and hears their heartbeat it's a divine encounter that doubles a baby's chances at life and by six weeks the eyes are forming by 10 weeks a baby is able to suck his or her own thumb and for just 28 dollars you could be the difference between life or death of a child all gifts are tax deductible and i want you to donate All you have to do is just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250, keyword baby. You can also donate securely at preborn.com slash verdict. That's preborn.com slash verdict or pound 250 and say the keyword baby. Two thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing a blackout. You could be one of them sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? Well, you could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. Folks say this new solar generator from four Patriots is worth its weight in gold. Why? Because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. So you can run big appliances like your fridge even longer or other devices like your electric blanket, your microwave, your RV, air conditioner, or even an electric wheelchair. You also get 12 outlets, including four AC outlets, so you can power more devices at once. And two USB-C outlets, which can charge your phone 20 times faster than a regular plug. Best of all, the new solar generator is fume-free, safe to use inside, and never needs gas ever. Over 150,000 Americans already trust Patriot Power Generators. So go to the number four, patriots.com slash verdict to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included for free. 
Go right now to the number four, patriots.com slash verdict. I want to ask you, I want to ask you this real quick about Sandra Day O'Connor and, and, and just the, the history aspect of this. Sandra Day O'Connor, a lot of people don't remember her this, the, way, the same way that they remember, you know, Ginsburg, for example. Was her breaking the glass ceiling and her legacy and being the first, the way that you described it, do you think in America we appreciate what she did and how big of a deal that was? No. Because the media obviously picked their favorites. It wasn't right. her. Well, because she was a Republican, it was not her. And right. there were issues on which – there were some issues on which Justice O'Connor was relatively conservative. On federalism, she could be quite strong. She was a Westerner. She, she had a, a fondness. So each of the justices had their own kind of quirks. They tended to hire clerks that kind of reflected – Sort of their personality. So Antonin Scalia would hire sharp, hard-elbowed, really smart Harvard lawyers. That, that, yeah. that was just, you know, that's who Scalia hired. Um, David Souter tended to hire gay, hippie, philosophical, long-haired clerks wearing Birkenstocks. Rehnquist, my boss. You're saying you wouldn't have gotten that job? Is no, that no, okay. I was I was not in the running. Okay, uh, for, for for suitors, that, I'm okay with that. R- Rehnquist tended to hire kind of all American, like Rhodes Scholar. He hired athletes. He didn't like Harvard. He didn't like Yale. I was actually a bizarrely atypical Rehnquist clerk. You would have been much more likely to be, to get hired by Rehnquist because he hired athletes, and part of the Rehnquist clerkship is you had to play tennis with him. Done. Every week. That's the closest I would ever gotten to clerking on the Supreme Court was that one qualification. So, so and he would, so we played tennis Thursday mornings, 11 a.m. And, and actually, so you had, so in any given year, there are roughly 8,000 petitions for certiorari, which is a request for the Supreme Court to take an appeal. The court grants about 80 a year, so they grant about 1%. The way the court resolves those is they have something called the cert pool, which is the law clerks that are there. They divvy up the the cert petitions and you write memos. So in a given week, you typically had to write seven to eight memos. They could be anywhere from one page to 20 pages analyzing the cert petition and making a recommendation to the justices whether they they should take the case. The pool memos were due Thursday at noon. We played Thursday at 11. And you got to understand the clerkship, like you work most days you work from, I worked from about 9 a.m. to 1 a.m. every day. I mean, you work your tail off. Many weeks, because what starts off, you start off in the summer, you're just doing pool memos, that takes all your time. Then you get to argued cases, you're preparing for argued cases, that takes more time. Then the court starts deciding uh, decisions, you're drafting opinions for your justice, that takes even more time. And then you've got emergency Uh, appeals, things like death penalty cases. So what happens is the pool memos, you end up compressing in a really short period of time. So an awful lot of Wednesday nights, I would pull an all-nighter. I'd be there all night because I'd start at like 10 o'clock at night Wednesday. I'd do an all-nighter to finish my pool memos, and then you'd go play tennis with the chief. And actually, O'Connor liked to play tennis with him. But the chief tended to hire. I went to Harvard. I was not an athlete. I was not a tennis player. My two co-clerks, one of them played JV tennis at Yale. The other was captain of his high school tennis team. I actually think the Chiefs screwed up hiring me. I think they like (laughs) picked the wrong pile. They made a phone call and they got embarrassed and just didn't retract it. But, But I have a really ignominious distinction. So for 20 plus years, the Chief always picked 
the best tennis player to be his partner. So we played doubles. So my year, the best tennis player was David Hoffman. He was the JV tennis player at Yale. Yeah. First week we played, David and the Chief versus Rick and me. The score was 6-0-6-0. The next week we played, the score was 6-0-6-0. The next week we played, the score was 6-0-6-0. After three weeks, the Chief got upset, and I am the only Chief clerk in history who was so bad. The Chief gave me the best player as my partner. And for the Just rest, to make it competitive, I love that. And for the rest of the year, we ended up actually generally winning, but it'd be like 6-4, 6-5, it was competitive, and basically David would cover three-fourths of the court, and I'd kind of stay in one small spot and try not to screw up too many points. But that was part of the job. O'Connor had once a week an aerobics class that would be held in the court, and so in the court... You have the building of the court above the courtroom. The courtroom, the roof of the courtroom has 24 karat gold gilded into the roof of the courtroom. It's really high. If you go up higher, the, the, the roof on top of the courtroom is the floor of a basketball court. And so when I clerked at the court, I played hoops three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Same schedule as our podcast. Yeah. And we would run full court two hours, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We actually had some pretty good games. You were in the best shape of your life. I, I actually, like, like six hours a week of full-court full basketball, was, would, you were yeah. in good shape. O'Connor would have an aerobics class up on the court. And look, O'Connor was a pioneer in a lot of the sex discrimination cases. You know what's fascinating? Justice O'Connor allowed no men in her aerobics class. Only women were allowed. And it was an absolute blatant sex discrimination. She's like, you're not seeing me in a leotard and you're not welcome. Yeah. Now, I have to admit, I was kind of glad because I didn't want to do aerobics and I might have felt pressure to do it if, if like men were invited. So I wasn't. So it was very easy. All right. One more Saturday O'Connor story. So I was Solicitor General five and a half years. We ended up being very fortunate. We had some really big constitutional law cases that just through serendipity came down the road and we ended up litigating and we won most of them. One of the biggest cases was a case called Van Orden versus Perry. Now Van Orden versus Perry was a challenge to the Ten Commandments monument outside of the Texas State Capitol. And let me set a little bit of context for it because it's relevant to O'Connor, it's relevant to Rehnquist in the court. So this is the mid-2000s. There had been litigation all over the country challenging the public display of Ten Commandments all over the country. The history of the Texas Ten Commandments monument, it was erected in 1961. But its history actually goes back to the 1950s. In the 1950s, there was a Minnesota state judge named E.J. Rugemeyer, who in the 1950s was upset about the diminishing morals of the youth in America. By the way, pause and think. In the 1950s, he was worried about youth morals. Think about today. Yeah. Like, holy cow, in 80 years, it hadn't gotten better. Yeah. And he came up with the idea to help the morals of the youth in America, let's publicly display the Ten Commandments in public areas across the nation. And he went to a public service organization, the Fraternal Order of Eagles, sort of like the Rotary Club or Kiwanis Club. And he said, hey, what do you all think of this idea? And they said... Great idea. We're all for it. All right, now, Ben, this is where the story takes a weird turn. This is exactly coterminous with the release of Cecil B. DeMille's movie, The Ten Commandments. No way. 
You know, Charlton Heston comes oh, yeah. down from Mount Sinai carrying the Ten Commandments. And Cecil B. DeMille was a larger-than-life Hollywood character. And DeMille gets wind of this. And he, and he was thinking like a Hollywood producer. He's like, hey, this is a great idea. But I don't want a piece of paper on a frame posted on the wall. If you're going to erect this, I want big, honking, granite Ten Commandments monuments just like I'm going to have Charlton Heston coming down the mountain with. There are dozens of what are called Eagles monuments all over the country, and they're all identical. Texas, it's six foot three inches tall, three foot six inches wide. It is red granite. It looks exactly like the, the, the tablets that Charlton Heston carried. And actually, I'm going to take a, a, a brief aside and say, if you ever are arguing a case in court, since you're not a lawyer, something would have to go terribly wrong for you to be arguing a case in court. <laughs> yeah. But if you're convicted of murder and you're defending yourself, um, the advice that I have given lawyers is never, ever, ever try to be funny. It is the province of judges to be funny. It is not the province of lawyers. Now, that is excellent advice, but I will tell you I have twice in my career broken that advice, and I've been very lucky. The gods of litigation have spared me my just desserts both times. When I was arguing the defense of the Texas Ten Commandments case in the, in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, the process that the Eagles use to develop the text of the Ten Commandments, there are differences across denominations. And so what the Eagles did is they brought together a committee that consisted of a pastor, a priest, and a rabbi. So at oral argument, I said this was drafted by a pastor, a priest, and a rabbi. And one of the judges on the Fifth Circuit, Judge Prado, leans forward and says, counsel, that sounds like the beginning of a joke. And I immediately said, yes, Your Honor, but nobody walked into a bar. And miraculously, it the, ju- the judge, judges took pity on me and laughed. It was stupid, but I was grateful for their mercy. We're in front of the U.S. Supreme Court on the Texas Ten Commandments Monument. And at the time, there had been dozens of cases challenging Ten Commandments monuments. Almost all of the monuments had lost. The weight of the case law was headed very significantly against the public display of the Ten Commandments. As the case was being appealed, so we had won in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, the plaintiff, a guy named Thomas Van Orden, who was an atheist, he was a homeless man, who had walked past the monument and was offended by it and filed a lawsuit seeking to tear it down. He filed a cert petition asking the Supreme Court to take the case. Now, normally, if you've won and the other side appeals to the Supreme Court, what you do is you fight against it. You say, no, no, don't take this case. There is no split of authority. It's not consequential. You don't need this. Say no, because if they say no, you've won. Here was the problem. There was an enormous split of authority. I thought the court was going to take one of these cases very, very soon. And we might have won a Pyrrhic victory of a short-term victory. But if a bad decision came down to the Supreme Court, we'd lose in the long term and lose our monument. So I went to my boss, Greg Abbott, and I said, General, I think we should do something that's called acquiescing insert, which is we should agree, yes, Supreme Court, you should take this case. And, and we drafted a brief in opposition where we said there is a split of authority. It is real. It is deep. It is wide. It is significant. And what we wrote in the, in the brief was if the court is inclined to resolve this issue, this case presents the single best fact pattern to uphold a permissible display of the Ten Commandments. It was very risky, because if the court took the case and we lost, 
everyone would pillory both Abbott and me. You idiots asked them to take this case, and then you got your butt kicked. Well, it ended up, we were right, they were going to take a case. They took the Texas case, and they took a case out of Kentucky. They took them both, and they scheduled them for argument on the same day. Um, as we're preparing the case, Abbott, my boss, who was attorney general, he told me when he started, he said, look, I want to argue one Supreme Court case while I'm AG. And let me know which one I should do. And so when this case was granted, I said, General, this is the one you should do. It's a discrete issue of law. It's incredibly important. He spent two months preparing for the argument. I put together some moot courts. I did a moot court in, in D.C. with a murderer's row of Supreme Court advocates. They had collectively over 100 oral arguments between them, and they just beat him senseless. I actually felt really nervous. Like when you put your boss in front of a moot, that like pounds him senseless. You're like, uh, General, I, I hope that was productive. <laughs> yeah. Please tell me I'm not unemployed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Please tell me I'm not getting my walking papers today. But look, if you do it right, you want the mood to be harder than the actual argument. So he went through, did several moods. He was ready for it. And in the brief, I told him, I said, OK, General, I've got a plan. So for about three decades, Sandra O'Connor was the deciding vote on ev almost every religious liberty establishment cause case in the country. And I read every opinion she'd written over and over and over again. And I told my team as we're drafting the brief, I said, I want us to swim in Sandra Day O'Connor's Establishment Clause jurisprudence. I want, I want this to embody everything she's ever thought or said about the First Amendment. And in fact, I told my lawyers, I said, I want the most frequent words in the brief to be O'Connor, J. I want them to occur more frequently than and or the... And one of my lawyers said, well, Ted, is it possible to be too obsequious to Justice O'Connor in this brief? I said, no. If we can put an oil portrait of Sandra Day O'Connor in the cover of our brief, we should do so. And again, I was, you know, probably I was a cocky 34, 35-year-old. I went to, to Abbott and I said, General, we are, we're living in her psyche. This brief is exactly what Sandra Day O'Connor thinks. Well, at the oral argument, I'm sorry to say, we missed horribly. She was utterly unpersuaded. She voted to strike down the Texas Ten Commandments monument. Now, here's where Supreme Court arguments are weird. Every argument we'd aimed at Sandra Day O'Connor missed her, but bizarrely enough, struck Steve Breyer. Wow. Bill Clinton appointee, relatively liberal justice, and the two cases, I told you there was Kentucky and Texas. Four justices vote to, voted to strike down both monuments. Four justices voted to uphold both monuments. Steve Breyer voted to strike down Kentucky and to uphold Texas, which, among other things, was a vindication of if we hadn't acquiesced in cert, the only opinion would have been Kentucky, and it would have been devastating for Ten Commandments monuments across the country. There was also a really nice kind of personal vindication in this. So Chief Justice Rehnquist had been an original dissenter in a case called Stone versus Graham, which struck down the display of the Ten Commandments in public schools across the country. And he had dissented. He said, this is not the First Amendment. This is not right. Van Orden versus Perry... Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote the plurality opinion for the court, upholding Texas's display of the Ten Commandments. It was the very last opinion Chief Justice Rehnquist ever wrote, and he passed away later that summer. And so 
as his former clerk, it was really cool to have been part of a case where he was able to vindicate a view he had articulated two decades earlier. And Sandra Day O'Connor, when it came to the standards, we didn't meet her standards, but miraculously enough, Steve Breyer liked what we had to say, and so we entered. And by the way, since then, the McCreary case out of Kentucky has proven to be a very unimportant precedent. It is rarely cited. And the Van Orden case changed the entire direction of case law so that Tenth, uh, Ten Commandments displays are now routinely upheld. I love, this is why I love doing the show. It's so fun to get to talk about this. And Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman on the Supreme Court, die, uh, passed away at the age of 93. Senator, always a pleasure. Don't forget, download this podcast. And make sure you hit that subscribe auto download button as we do this Monday, Wednesday, Friday. A best of what you may have missed during the week on Saturdays. Uh, and many of you may not know this. The algorithms changed this week on Apple. Make sure you hit that follow button and check to see because they have changed the algorithms where if you haven't downloaded an episode in X number of days, apparently it can stop doing it for you. So make sure you hit that follow button again and check it often. The Senator and I will see you back here on Wednesday. If you're a guy and you are sick and tired of feeling like you've gotten a little bit older, maybe you you feel like weakness and complacency have set in, you're not alone. Testosterone levels have literally fallen off a cliff historically, and they're now at an all-time low. Now, thankfully, uh, the Patriots at Chalk are here to help real men just like you take back your right to proudly maximize your masculinity by boosting testosterone levels up to 20%. Over 90 days, yes, 20% over 90 days. Now, I've been taking the male vitality stack, and it's manufactured right here in the U.S. of A. Chalk's natural herbal supplements are clinically proven to have game-changing effects on your energy, your focus, and your mood. So, if you're ready to fight back and not give in to the weakness that everybody seems to be obsessed with, then check out Chalk, C-H-O-Q.com. Boost your testosterone levels up to 20% over 90 days. Go online to C-H-O-Q.com. That's C-H-O-Q.com. Check out the Male Vitality Stack and use the promo code BEN for 35% off. That's right. You'll save 35% off right now for life at Chalk, C-H-O-Q.com, promo code BEN. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ben Ferguson here. And if you're an accredited investor, U.S. oil and gas should be a part of your investment portfolio. And I want you to visit LabradorEnergy.com. Beyond the possibility to invest in a sector that historically delivers sound returns, when you invest with Labrador Energy, you may be able to structure your investments to offset active or passive income. According to many sources, U.S. oil and gas drilling remains 
one of the best tax-advantaged income investments available. Visit LabradorEnergy.com. You may be able to reduce your tax liability while investing in a sector that historically delivers sound returns. Learn more now at LabradorEnergy.com today. Offer for accredited investors only. Past performance is no indication of future results. Investing involves risk. Consult your legal, tax, and financial advisors and read the prospectus before making any investment decisions. Visit LabradorEnergy.com for the prospectus and more information.